Hello listeners, welcome to IT Guy Who Lifts podcast. I am your host, Palash Gupta, Diploma in Nutrition and Fitness Sciences from INFS India and Bachelor's in Sports and Exercise Science from Lopuro University, UK. The goal of this podcast is to understand science and science-based tools with the help of industry experts so that we can further optimize our training and nutrition program. With that in mind, let's jump right into today's podcast. Hello listeners, today we have been graced by the presence of Dr. Gabriel Fandaro. So without further ado, let me pass the baton towards Dr. Gabriel so that she can give the listeners a brief introduction about herself, her professional endeavors, her lifting endeavors, and how this iron bug bit her and made her the woman she is today. But before that, Dr. Gabriel, uh, on this podcast, I always give this uh, disclaimer. So on this podcast, we actually urge and request our uh, guests to provide the longest possible introduction they have ever given elsewhere. Because we want to know all the events which unfolded in front of our guests and laid down the path on which they have walked upon and become the person that they are today. So with that in mind, stage is all yours, Dr. Gabriel. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad to know that because I do have sort of a strange story. <laughs> um, I have a, I had sort of like an unconventional path to where I am today. Uh, and I actually started college as a music major. So I thought that I was going to be a music therapist. I had never been, um, well, I never thought that I was strong in the hard sciences and I didn't really receive helpful messaging about it when I was growing up. It was sort of, uh, like the a stereotypical, you know, women in our family aren't good at math and science and, you know, so, so you probably won't be either. And so I had that belief and I was um, pretty prolific in music growing up. I sang for my entire life. And um, when, yeah, when I went to college, I thought, okay, I'm going to just do music for the rest of my life. Um, but as it turns out, I was skilled in singing and no other instruments. And as a music therapist, you know, they kind of expect, understandably, that you will play a variety of instruments. So I had been um, accepted on a full scholarship for, for undergrad, and that required maintenance of a high GPA. And I sort of predicted that I might not maintain that GPA if I were to stay, uh, you know, as a music major. And in the meantime, I had really fallen in love with my introductory biology class. And I also had started getting into um, you know, exercise and rock climbing. We had an indoor rock wall at my undergrad institution, which is out in um, southwestern Virginia, so like the east coast of the U.S. And I thought, well, maybe I can do something that's sort of like tangential to this. And instead of a music therapy major, I'll be a recreational therapy major. And the focus of that degree was about helping people um, learn about themselves and connect with others through like outdoor activities. But part of the requirements for that degree were to do leave no trace training. So you had to go live in the woods for like two weeks. And I thought, uh, at that time, I wasn't as, as much of a fan of hiking as I am now, so, so that wasn't really for me. And then I thought, well, is there something that I can do that's like the combination of biology and exercise? And lo and behold, exercise science is a thing. So I switched my major to exercise science. And um, so the, the major was technically exercise, sport, and health education. And um, we even had the opportunity to do a minor in martial arts. So I actually took a lot of martial arts courses, um, but I ended up doing sort of a, a combined degree. It was a cognate. It was like commercial fitness and, um, and exercise science. So I thought that I was going to own a gym. So that was my plan until my junior year of undergrad. And I realized I was not interested in the business and marketing and liability side of things. I really was just passionate about the, the physiology of exercise and, and particularly skeletal muscle physiology. So at this point I was taking uh, an anatomy and physiology course that was really 
um, uh, it was expedited because I had switched majors. So I was a little bit behind. I got really lucky that I tested out of a whole year of English, but I didn't really have time to do the full two semester anatomy and phys. So I did the equivalent of two semesters in one. So it was like a, an eight credit course or something crazy like that. Um, extremely quick, uh, quick pace and, you know, really frequent labs. And I loved it and I seemed to really take to the information and I ended up tutoring my classmates entirely on accident. I just showed up to one of our study sessions one day and they handed me a whiteboard and dry erase markers and said, we have so many questions for you. So I ended up tutoring uh, just kind of like it was, it wasn't official tutoring. So I was like, you know, black market tutoring. And at the end of the semester, I confessed to my professor because there was like talk about cheating and things like that. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I hope I haven't like broken any rules um but he was really uh he was he was pleasantly surprised and he said you know clearly i had been helpful because the grades had been really high that semester and so he invited me to teach his last lecture on renal physiology so i taught myself the chapter i worked with him i developed a lecture and i taught it and that was when i knew that i wanted to go on to become a professor i thought you know if this is something that i'll do for free and i love it then i want to do this for a living so i went straight from bachelor's to phd uh, and i interned before i started my phd as part of my bachelor's in a skeletal muscle physiology and biochem lab and that was where i ended up doing my phd i basically just transitioned in after my you know semester of internship and then uh, a semester as just a research assistant I applied for the PhD program and was accepted. And I started in that program studying the effects of high fat feeding on skeletal muscle hypertrophy. That was my intended project. And part of my duties were, I, I were doing a lot of um, like animal husbandry. So I was handling the mice, I was giving injections, I was sacrificing them. And I was frequently performing these uh, LPS or lipopolysaccharide injections. So we would inject the mice and then some six hours later, we would sacrifice them, collect their tissues and then look at markers of inflammation and measure metabolic flexibility. And I was really curious as to what this was modeling in a human body. You know, what, what's the physiological relevance of LPS injection? And that's when I learned for the first time about the gut microbiome. I literally did not know that it was a thing before this. And this was back in 2009. So it really wasn't something that was being spoken about frequently. And um, I was, and so my, my uh, advisor just kind of gave me a brief overview that LPS comes from certain bacteria that, are, that reside in our intestines. And um, there are certain states like type two diabetes or obesity or high fat feeding that are associated with increased levels of this LPS. And that has been cited as a potential um, cause or player in the development of type 2 diabetes and, and sort of low-grade inflammation that they termed metabolic endotoxemia. So I'm very much uh, sort of like a problem-solving, you know, big-picture puzzle type of person. And I thought, why are we not uh, looking at the level of the gut microbiome and trying to stage some sort of intervention there instead of, you know, just treating at the level of skeletal muscle sort of after this has occurred? And we just didn't have the funding and we didn't have, and that wasn't really our area, you know, we, that no one in the lab had ever done anything with the actual gut. So we, um, you know, I, I was curious and wasn't able to quell my curiosity for about six months until we actually procured funding from a company that was producing a probiotic called VSL3. And uh, once we gained that, you know, once we, when we were given that grant, my advisor came to me and said, do you want to do this as your side project? You know, a little like probiotics thing on the side. And I was like, oh yeah, great. This is so cool. You know, I've got my main project going off without a hitch, which never happens. You know, there's always some sort of mistake, but it was so smooth. And then I got the side project, you know, and I'm like pursuing my curiosities. So fast forward another six months or so, my main project has reached the um, tissue collection stage. So we're, you know, sacrificing all these mice, collecting their tissues and putting them in a storage solution. And we had some undergraduate, you know, helpers and whatnot that were assisting with the process. And I was not, you know, keeping close tabs and we ended up uh, uh, storing, improperly storing with the 
pretty much all of the skeletal muscle from that study and lost all of it. And so we had to can the whole thing. There was literally nothing that we could do with it. So fortunately, I have this side project probiotic study that we just said, okay, let's make that my the topic of my dissertation. Um, and so that's how I ended up studying the gut microbiome and probiotic supplementation. And that took five years uh, in part because I had skipped my master's and then also because I started a, a teaching fellowship in my third year. And it was intended to be a three-year program, but they kind of gave me a pass as long as I got all the requirements done in two years <laughs> that I could finish and, and graduate with that. So I went on to um, become a, an assistant professor of exercise science, and I didn't intend to do anything with my dissertation research because, again, this was in 2014. So like the gut microbiome, like gut health was kind of just emerging, but people still weren't really talking about it you know, to any great extent. Like the Internet was still focused on just like inflammation, you know, so they weren't talking about gut microbiome. And I taught uh, exercise science and sport nutrition for three years. And in my third year, I was, I guess, discovered by Mike Isratel from Renaissance Periodization in a Facebook group associated with the International Society of Sport Nutrition because I was studying for that exam. And he liked the content that I was putting out. I had like a tiny little, you know, sport nutrition blog and uh, he, you know, recruited me to, to RP. So I was an RP coach. And I did that while teaching, and then I started my own telehealth business, Vitamin PhD Nutrition, um, all within the same year. And at that point, I'd been teaching for four years, and I needed to either go up for promotion to associate professor um, or kind of like decide to not stay in academia. I mean, you kind of have to like, you know, it's like you, you go forward or, or you, you leave. So um, I was not feeling as fulfilled in my academic role because there, like, it wasn't kind of what I had anticipated it was going to be. And I was feeling very fulfilled by coaching, and I had done a couple of speaking engagements and found those to be incredibly enjoyable and fulfilling. And I made the decision to resign from academia and go into coaching full time. And from there, there was just kind of a snowball effect because um, Mike had set me up with um, Steve Hall from Revive Strong. Yeah, for my first podcast, and I talked about like just the basics of gut health. And I think that was might have been one of like the first podcasts where people, you know, were kind of talking about that. It was this was in 2017, and from there, I you know started speaking internationally with RP. And I spent four years and some change with them um, while I was building my own business. And then I started collaborating with my friend Shannon Beer on our Bridging the Gap article series that talks about sort of the history and sociocultural influences on dieting and, and sort of diet culture. And uh, we developed the comprehensive coaching framework that operationalizes motivational interviewing, acceptance and commitment training, and cognitive behavioral coaching in a uh, framework that helps to increase client capacity and focus on flourishing health rather than just physical health or just aesthetics. And um, we've done a, a several webinars um, together, and uh, we've also developed a spectrum of intentional eating. So it is a sort of this anti-dogmatic, uh, nutritionally agnostic spectrum of weight neutral and weight focused approaches that's integrated into our coaching framework. So we're helping people determine what is the best approach for them. And so in the past year, I've um, separated from RP. I did finish my book with Dr. Hoffman and we published that um, through RP. And then I started up with Examine a couple months later and I've been uh, a researcher and writer for them focusing on gut health related topics. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I am today. So I got here through just like a couple happy accidents and, uh, you know, kind of being in the right place at the right time. Ooh, so all the uh, serendipitous uh, events that happened finally led you here. So that was really, really a great introduction. And you not only tested the waters in the lifting side, but you went skin deep as well. So would you like to throw some light in that? Because uh, people will are really, really interested in uh, knowing your lifting background as well. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so I started lifting when I was 19. I made friends um, with someone in, I think he was in my anthropology class. His name was, we would call each other by our last name, so um, wisely. And and uh, he 
was sort of like a, a curious, interesting, like introverted character. And I can't remember how we started talking, but we ended up like either hiking or going to the gym together or something one day. And then I wanted to get stronger for rock climbing. And so I didn't know what I was doing. I hadn't actually switched majors yet. And I just thought like, okay, I'm going to do a lot of like back exercises gosh, you know, this is, this is really fun. Like, I want to learn more about this because I'm the type of person that like wants to learn everything about a specific topic. Yeah. So by the, when, when I finally switched to exercise science, you know, that was his major. Um, we were in, we were in a super small program. So we have pretty much all of our courses together and we were like the two of the biggest gym rats, like people in our major, like knew that we were going to be at the gym or out hiking or whatever. Um, you know, playing tennis, it was just like, I'd never been active for my entire life. I'd never really, like, I played, you know, basketball in sixth grade and that was about it. Um, so I was like, oh my gosh, like there's this whole world of like fun activities, you know, and, and lifting. And, um, I ended up doing a bench press competition. I think like my junior year of undergrad and I was like, man, this is amazing. I feel just so empowered, you know? So, um, I, I, I kind of dabbled in, in distance training until I got into my major and then I was able to really, you know, like produce a, a, an okay lifting program. And I've maintained that. I mean, I never, I have never stopped lifting since I was 19. Um, but I've dabbled a little bit in um, trail running. So I was, you know, I lived in the mountains of Southwestern Virginia for 10 years, right next to the Appalachian Trail. So like I would modify my lifting program to fit with the amount of running that I wanted to do. So I was out running for, you know, seven to 10 miles on the trails and uh, I ended up injuring my ankle so severely that I couldn't keep that up. And so I kind of just like went back to lifting. And then once I felt better and I moved to Georgia to start teaching, I was like, oh, I've got like disposable income and a little bit of free time now. And so I started jujitsu, <laughs> I did that for about nine months. And then I did a, a physique competition that was my one and only, and I was like, yeah, okay, that was nice, but um, I, I don't want to basically give myself an eating disorder again. Yeah. So, you know, I was like, yeah, let's, you know, I'm going to take a break from the, the long-term, you know, starvation. And I um, turned my attention back to, you know, gaining strength and lifting. And it's when I got into powerlifting. And I, I did several powerlifting competitions. I must have done that for a couple of years and um you know i ranged from like not placing at all i to there's one meet that i got like best female lifter they're really small meets but you know it was just kind of a, a neat um journey to focus on strength and kind of like um also change my perspectives about like the about body weight and weight and you know like focusing on strength um, rather than trying to be like my smallest self, which is sort of this, you know, pandemic of, of a lot of women um, less. So yeah. um, after my venture into powerlifting, I kind of took a break from that because I was competing pretty much back to back and I was starting to get a little bit tired and I just thought, you know, maybe I'm going to chill out and like, you know, exercise more recreationally. And not soon after that, I or soon after that, I um, started traveling with RP. And then it was like, how am I going to fit lifting in with, you know, traveling around the world? And so I had to be more flexible with my training program. And that was difficult for me because I'm usually a very like structured and organized person. And then, um, you know, and then I started just living as a digital nomad. So it was like, you know, I mean, maybe like an anytime fitness or whatever. And, you know, um, but I still kept it up because I just really intrinsically am motivated. I just really love to lift. And then when the pandemic hit and all the gyms closed down, you know, I think a lot of people who are like lifetime lifters, uh, you had this crisis of identity. Like, what do I do now? You know, who am I if I'm not going to the gym? Um, so it was a lot of like resistance band work and, you know, I got a little like set of adjustable dumbbells and focused more on just, you know, being outside. I had moved to Arizona and, um, you know, I just love to be out in the mountains, in the desert. So I did that. And then, uh, I, now I live with my boyfriend and we have in home gym, which is very well equipped and, um, it's really convenient, you know, cause it's like literally outside the door of my office. So I can, I can. Uh, and oh, and I forgot I started playing. I started learning how to play ice hockey uh, a couple of months ago. That's a sport that I've been wanting to learn since I was little because I grew up in Michigan and hockey's very big there. 
So my training more recently has been focused on um, hockey specific stuff, sort of like dry land training. And it's fun for me to do programming and like look at different sports and, you know, what are like the yeah. movements, you know, that are sports specific. So, um, you know, it kind of keeps things fresh and interesting. And yeah, so that's, that's what I'm doing now is like training, like uh, kind of a hockey player. That's so wonderful. So along with your professional endeavors and lifting endeavors, have you ever considered of giving audition for Wonder Woman? Because that title definitely suits you <laughs> based on your history of your academic uh, uh, endeavors and your lifting endeavors. So you should uh, get in touch with the DC Cinematic Universe and you should try for the Wonder Woman <laughs> audition. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So one more question I have because I became uh, really, really curious about the social media handle which people use, right? Uh, just uh, you have vitamin PhD nutrition. So what is the like uh, how this particular term coined up in front of you or why you choose to decide with this kind of a term? Because our social media entity somehow becomes our, our second identity in the real life, right? So how you came about that particular term? Uh, would you like to throw some light? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came up with that when I first started teaching and I had my sport nutrition blog. And that would have been probably, I think that might have been like 2016 or 2015. So it was like not, not long after I started teaching. And um, my first sort of catchphrase was something like, get your daily dose of evidence-based nutrition info. So, at, nice. so I wanted to, you know, kind of like send this because I was talking about supplementation a lot. I was kind of like, that was my little like nerdy path for a while. Like, you know, every sort of supplement, I wanted to learn all about it. So I was thinking like, you know, supplements, you know, vitamins. And then I thought like, I want to, um, you know, not to toot my own horn or be elitist, but to say, like, I have an advanced degree. And so I'm not just like making stuff up. I'm not just like an influencer. If that term even existed back then, but, um, you know, to say, like, this is an evidence based set. This is an evidence based blog. So it was like vitamin PhD. And, um, you know, and then I, I used to have parentheses around the pH. So it was like vitamin D, you know, but vitamin PhD, but I sort of phased that out over time in part because you can't really like use, it's hard to do that, you know, and make it look good. And um, I think my LLC is registered with just like the PhD. So um, that's where that first, that's where that came from. And over time, you know, my, my content and messaging have changed so much that um, it wasn't, that it, it started to become about more than you know just nutrition information so um as my messaging transitioned and i was speaking more about you know like the psychology of the change in weight loss and um you know i still am talking about gut health but i'd say it's probably a 50 50 split i i realized that that doesn't like fit so much um in terms of that cap sort of little phrase so I still have vitamin PhD because at this point, like now that's an established name, yeah. I guess, you know, not, and again, it's like, you know, as established as I am compared to other people is not established, but it's like people know that. So I kept that, but I, uh, this year I changed the phrasing and now, um, I, I was inspired by a podcast I had earlier this year where the host was just very kind and, and gave me such nice feedback and said that, you know, I have this mix of both science and compassion that, you know, I'm trying to communicate science, but I also want to validate people's experiences. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, I really like that. That's so kind. And like, yes, that is what I want people to get from my content. And so that's where I came up with science fortified with compassion. So I still have like fortified, you know, kind of like related to vitamins and minerals, yeah. but you know, science fortified with compassion. So it's science, but it's it's provided in a way that is intended to be kind, compassionate, and helpful. Definitely, definitely. Really love to hear the side story and the backstory behind that particular Instagram handle at your LLC name tag. And I read your book, I have read your blogs, posts, and the things which I really like the most is uh, the way you portray these scientific jargons. And because we as a science mediator, it's our job to portray the scientific knowledge into the actual 
application so that even a layman or a general population can use that uh, uh, particular uh, scientific knowledge and you can they can enhance their day-to-day -day life so i definitely love that part of that so i have uh, read your book but uh, since this world gut health has been thrown around a lot people do not completely understand it they think it's just the intestine what happens in intestine rest in intestine just like what happens in corsica rest in corsica so what do you like to throw some light keep uh, what actually is gut health and what are the components that it uh, circumcised by absolutely so i i developed sort of this working definition of gut health because i noticed the same thing you know that it is this really um, ambiguous term that people yeah. use it to mean all sorts of things. And in the research world, there's really not a consensus definition and it's not used as frequently. So there are some things that are used in both places. Like you'll see leaky gut in a publication and you'll see leaky gut on an Instagram post, but you won't really see gut health in a publication. So I came up with well, the, these, this sort of working definition that is not derived directly from the research, but it's something that I think is helpful to get a sense of this like umbrella term and what people are probably talking or thinking about when they say gut health. And I call it the three D's of gut health. It's diversity, disease, and digestion. So diversity refers to the, um, the, the richness or like the number of species and the relative abundance of species of microbes in the gut, uh, or we can think of it in, in some types of microbes, they, they're not classified as sort of species, but sort of the, the um, variety of microbes in, in your gut, and then also the variety of genes. So there's a vast number of genes and just genetic information in the gut that greatly outweighs our own genetic information by about a magnitude of, of 10. So we have about 22,000 genes um, and they have about 220,000. So it's, um, you know, they, they, they have an abundance of functions. So ideally we have a wide variety of microbes that are not closely related. We have a lot of redundancy built in. So if we lose some microbes, we don't lose the functionality of the whole population and that we have a relative abundance. When you're saying relative, we're thinking about it like a pie chart. So if we have, you know, 60% of one and 40% of another, now if we lose some, we will have a 50-50 split. Or, you know, if we gain some, we might have a 70-30 split, but it has to add up to 100%. So there's relative abundance of microbes that favors either the neutral or, or beneficial microbes and suppresses the virulence of potential pathogens. So we do have pathogens that are normal inhabitants of the gut, but um, in, in healthy individuals, they're just sort of existing. They're not actually causing illness. So that's diversity. And then disease. So disease is looking not at the microbiome, not at the microbes in their genetic material, but at the anatomy and physiology of the tissues of our gastrointestinal tract. So our, our intestines are um, made of multiple layers. So like the outermost layer, if you were to like, you know, open up someone's stomach and you look, you see the outside of intestine, there's that's multiple layers of smooth muscle that um, are contracting to move food along. And then um, inside of that is a thick layer of connective tissue. So there's um, a lot of capillaries in there. So there's a lot of blood flow. There are tons of immune cells. And then on the innermost layer of the intestines, that's where we have this single layer of intestinal cells. So they are either helping to absorb our, our nutrients from our food, or they're producing mucus, or they're playing some sort of immune function. And then uh, covering those cells in the small intestine, we have an incomplete layer of mucus. And then the large intestine, we have a bilayer, a double layer of mucus. And the top layer of mucus, the one that's like um, inside uh, the, the, like the, the innermost layer, that's inhabited by microbes. So when we're looking at disease, we can either look at a functional disease. So the tissues look normal, but they're not behaving normally. So there's some issue with the physiology, like with irritable bowel syndrome or an organic disease where the tissues are being affected, like an ulcerative colitis. And we could also, we're also going to see a change in the function as well. So we don't have any causative relationship. We don't have any cause and effect relationship between the microbiome and any disease but we tend to see patterns in people with 
diseases, that their microbiomes look different from people without that disease. But even from even between two people with the same disease, we'll see a lot of variability. So we can't yeah. establish cause and effect. Um, and that's why the microbiome is really a separate entity from you know, uh, the, the gastrointestinal tract and the disease that might be present there. But people are usually, you know, they're thinking about like, the microbiome yeah. and, and you know, the tissues as well. And then the third D is digestion. And that's really just the subjective experience of digesting and absorbing our nutrients. So people are usually thinking about gas, bloating, stool quality, um, you know, bowel movement frequency. And oftentimes people are assuming that if they have um, some GI discomfort, like, you know, they're having some gas or bloating, that there must be some dysfunction at the level of microbiome, you know, diversity. They have like a dysbiosis, imbalanced microbiome, or maybe they have some sort of disease. And that can be the case. So irritable bowel syndrome is, you know, part. A lot of the symptoms are just, you know, it's GI distress, you know, um, gas and bloating, and you know, constipation or diarrhea. But some level of gas and bloating are are just a normal um, phenomenon that happen because those microbes are fermenting nutrients and creating gas. And some nutrients, some specific types of carbohydrates, are very fermentable, and so they create a lot of gas. And some um, GI diseases don't have, um, you know, especially when we're looking at like colorectal cancer, you know, that doesn't have like significant outward symptoms right off the bat. If someone has like a very small tumor, they might not know that anything's wrong, you know, or if maybe like their bowel movements look a little bit more narrow, but they don't have any other issues, they might not notice that. So there are, so that's why it's important that, you know, we are, um, communicating the science with transparency and clarity so people know that, okay, they probably don't have like a candida overgrowth because that's something we only see in, in premature babies and people who are immunocompromised. So if they're having some real um, changes to their bowel movements and whatnot, um, and they go to like do a candida cleanse, but they really have a serious disease going on, that could cause significant harm. That's why it's important uh, one of my missions to, to try and clarify this to say, you know, it might not be anything to worry about. So don't let someone sell you a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah. But, you know, if something is going on, go and, and get, you know, a valid diagnostic um, or screening test so that you can. Definitely. Since you mentioned the three D's of gut health, uh, like uh, diversity, disease, and digestion. And we know that uh, digestion starts from our mouths and uh, ends at the rectum. So this word gut, it comprises of uh, how many organs or you can say body parts. Would you like to throw some light on that? Sure, yeah. So um, and that's a great segue too to mention that we actually have multiple microbiomes. So we have yeah. an oral microbiome that has much lower numbers and much lower diversity. And that's where we actually could see, um, even in a healthy person, we could see a, a candida or a yeast overgrowth in the mouth because it's easy for them to form biofilms. We don't have these sort of like um, uh, fluid, you know, like planktonic forms of the microbiome. We have kind of just like surfaces. So um, in babies, they develop thrush. So that's a, you know, a yeast overgrowth. So that can occur in the oral microbiome. We also have a skin microbiome. So again, that looks very, all these microbiomes are significantly different. So if you were to culture them, you know, a different set of microbes would grow. Um, but we have a skin microbiome as well. Again, low numbers and lower diversity than what we would see in the gut. And then women have a vaginal microbiome. Uh, again, much lower numbers and lower diversity. It is really predominantly inhabited by lactobacilli uh, species because they can withstand the acidic environment. And that is another place where uh, females could experience a yeast overgrowth, again, because we have low diversity and because um, the pH can be affected if a woman were to use like a douching product or something like that that throws off the pH. Now we have less suppression of the yeast um, uh, species, and so they could overgrow as well. But when we look at the, um, the gut microbiome, what we're really looking at, we have a gastric microbiome, so that's just the stomach. And then the gut microbiome is generally referring to just the small and large intestine. 
And we do actually have some other microbiomes that aren't as well characterized, but in the gallbladder, there's a, a set of microbes. And then in milk ducts, there are also microbes. So we could think about that as sort of a, a microbiome. And microbiome just means microbes in their genetic material. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a super complex system, but we see that we have these, these microbes um, pretty much, uh, you know, in every uh, area of our body. So uh, that's kind of how we can break that all down. And then the fecal microbiome, the one that we're usually using in uh, research, is significantly different from the gut microbiome. So when we look at the, the sort of the ecosystem of the small and large intestines, we can break that down into small micro environments because we have the lumen of the intestine. So that's the inner tube. And that's where the microbes are existing in sort of this planktonic state. So they're, they're floating around in the chyme and the foodstuffs and the fluid um, that are present there. And the small intestine is much more acidic because it's close to the stomach, whereas the large intestine, especially the distal large intestine, is much less acidic and it's also uh, more anaerobic. So there's much lower oxygen availability. So both pH level and oxygen availability are strong influences on which microbes will be present. So if we have lower acid and less oxygen, that's why we have such a high number and high variety of microbes in the large intestine versus the small intestine. Then we can look at the mucus layer. So remember in the small intestine, we have a very thin incomplete mucus layer, but in the large intestine, we have that bilayer. So there are also mucus associated microbes that are actually residing in the mucus layer. And when we take a fecal sample, where that fecal sample is more representative of the, the microbes in the lumen of the distal large intestine. And that's significantly different from the samples that we might take from the actual mucosal layer. So it's something yeah. else to keep in mind, you know, when we're looking at, at studies that unless we're taking a sample from, and some studies do, you know, unless we're taking a sample from the small intestine and the large intestine and looking at the mucosal, um, you know, inhabitants that really the term we, we need to be using is the fecal microbiome rather than the gut microbiome. Definitely. This in, piece of information is really, really important for the listeners to identify the different parts, body parts and the different types of microbiome because generally the moment we hear this word microbiome, everyone relates it to the gut. But as we now we have know that that's not the case. You're even skin, your vagina and females, uh, different, different body parts they have a different microbiome and even when it comes to the scientific studies we have to make sure to pinpoint from where they are picking the sample and uh, you can inferring the results from so that was a really really informative uh, information so on that note are there any sexual differences uh, i mean are there any specific microbiome just as you mentioned that there are vaginal microbiomes which are specific to the females are there any for the males or uh, are there any other specific uh, microbiomes in the males and female to other specific regions which are not present in the other gender um, that's an area that's still kind of in its infancy in part because males are more frequently studied than females sort of like across the board um, but in females, one that I have seen um, that comes to mind is that females uh, may have higher levels of lactospiraceae, which I want to, I believe that's um, a, a lactic acid, it could either be a lactic acid producing um, bacteria or um, a, a fermenter of, you know, a, a, that produces butyrate sort of preferentially. Um, so that one comes to mind only because I've seen it mentioned a couple times as like sort of a, a bad microbe and, it, and it's not. It's just one that is producing butyrate and short chain fatty acids. So um, sometimes people characterize those as bad because they increase um, the energy harvesting from the diet. Yeah. That's one of the really important roles of the microbiome. So lactospiraceae is one potential. Um, we, we know that there are a number of different influences on a person's individual microbiome, and there are so many that it might actually be difficult to determine what is actually related to gender, you know, versus what's related to lifestyle, you know, yeah. pharmaceutical drug use and things like that. So that's one factor that is extremely confounding, even, you know, in terms of like the drinking water people are using, it's almost impossible to really control uh, a human 
uh, microbiome study because it's influenced by you know anything that passes through as a potential influence. But one thing that we've gathered from rodent studies is that um, male and female rodents seem to have different microbial responses to ketogenic diets. So there's some clue there that perhaps there is some um, core microbiome that's different in males versus females, and that core microbiome might influence our entire microbiome's response to dietary changes. So that's one thing to think about. Um, the other would be potentially the role of estrogens, um, mostly in postmenopausal women. So in premenopausal women, circulating estrogen doesn't seem to have any sort of correlation with a specific microbiome profile, whether that's you know endogenous or um, exogenous, like a birth control. But in postmenopausal women, there does seem to be a relationship. Um, so those microbes are able to uh, metabolize estrogens. And anything that they metabolize, you know, anything that's acting as a, a nutrient source for them could influence their, their numbers and their ability to thrive. So that's, you know, another thing to potentially think about. Now, there are some other potential confounding factors. So in, in women, um, there have been relatively few studies looking at the um, microbiome or the fungal microbiome. Uh, but the candida species seem to be overrepresented in females versus males. But that could be because of the proximity, but, you know, there's a close proximity between the vaginal canal and the rectum where, you know, mm. they're collecting the fecal samples. So it could be that there's just some, you know, translocation of the candida species. And, um, the, and then there are some species that could pass through just from diet or just from the oral cavity. So there's actually even um, debate about whether candida are residents, like living full time in the GI tract, or if they're just passing through because we're swallowing them. And yeah. you know, so like even oral health could play a role. And like, you know, do males and females have like different, you know, dental hygiene habits? You know, so there's so many things that could potentially influence the, the difference in, um, you know, the male versus female microbiome. Um, but it's one thing that we're actually looking at um, in a, a RCT that I'm involved with. Um, I've got a colleague out in Tennessee I, who I met a few years ago um, at an ISSN uh, conference, actually. He'd done some probiotic research in athletes. And so I, I uh, approached him when I was with RP and said, you know, we might be able to get some funding and whatnot to support this study. And so we are doing a study that's looking at both male and female collegiate athletes and um, determining if there are any sort of baseline differences in their microbiomes and, uh, you know, how that might be related to diet because we're doing dietary um, calls. And then we're also putting them through uh, or also have put them through we're in that analysis phase now. Um, a really rigorous, grueling uh, resistance training uh, experience. And then we're measuring markers of intestinal permeability um, and uh, intestinal damage and getting subjective ratings of GI distress. And we're hoping that maybe we can draw some correlations between their baseline microbiome characteristics and GI distress. Because one thing that we do see in the literature is that females um, are more likely to experience exercise-induced GI distress. Yeah. And it's not really, you know, it's not really clear what the reason for that is. Um, so hopefully we can, you know, start to clarify that a little bit. Definitely. That's a really, really good piece of information. And also when I read your book, you have mentioned those genetics and epigenetics, especially the one thing which fascinated me, that uh, example of uh, having a vaginal delivery versus C-section delivery, right? How these two different types of delivery uh, method methods can change the microbiome of the uh, offspring. So would you like to throw some light on how, how this pans out in actual world? Yeah, so this has been a really interesting area in part because it's so controversial and also yeah. because there have been some kind of like upheavals of you know what was commonly understood as being true at the time. So, so a lot of the controversy centers around um, when we're first colonized, whether we are colonized in utero, you know, where it should be a sterile environment, yeah. or if we are colonized, um, you know, in the process of, of birth. So as the um, infant passes through the vaginal canal, they are born usually kind of like face down. And so they get a combination of the 
vaginal microbes and the fecal microbes in their um, nasal cavity, their mouth, their eyes, and that is how they're initially colonized if born vaginally. Whereas if they're born via C-section, their first exposure will be the skin microbiome, which looks very different again. So we're seeing that instead of being colonized by lactobacilli uh, and bifidobacteria, we're seeing more like streptococcus and staphylococcus um, in C-section births. And what, and, and so this is, um, so that was kind of like the first controversy, like where are we actually, you know, being colonized? Because some samples have shown that um, samples from like in utero, you know, they have some bacterial colonization and then other labs say that's just contamination. You, know, you didn't do that right. So that's still up in the air. So the previous sort of um, held belief that was pretty, pretty well um, uh, received for several years was that uh, babies born via C-section were more likely to develop obesity because of that initial colonization of microbes. But what they found later was that these the, the studies weren't accounting for the BMI of the mother. BMI. Yes, so, the, so mothers with a high BMI with obesity are more likely to have a C-section birth and then there's a strong correlation between maternal BMI and, and child um, and, their, and the BMI of the offspring. So it looks like that's it's probably more likely that that's the mediating relationship um, more so than the, the microbiome. But where we are seeing strong relationships that um, haven't been challenged yet would be the relationship between C-section birth and the development of um, allergies later in life, development of allergies, either um, food allergies or skin allergies, so like atopic mm. diseases and things like that. And the theory there is that because the early microbiome is so influential in shaping the infant's immune system, that that initial low diversity could play a role in the development of these allergies later on because the immune system is, you know, for lack of a better term, uninformed and, and responding to things that it shouldn't respond to. Whereas, you know, the babies that are born vaginally they're exposed to the lactobacilli, um, uh, yeast species, yeast do appear to play an important role in immune sensitivity and, um, and, these, and these bifidobacteria. So these microbes together are helping to regulate the immune response so it's not um, an overreaction, but also to keep it informed of you know, which microbes are friendly, which microbes are potentially pathogenic. And there could also be a role of that microbiome in um, facilitating the uh, sort of the closure of these tight junctions between cells. So infants are, they have very permeable intestines. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a high oxygen uh, environment and there's more um, ability for larger peptides to leak between the cells and come into contact with those immune cells in that connective tissue layer. So that's another theory that perhaps because of that low diversity, that sort of dysbiosis, um, that they remain permeable for a longer period of time. And then immune cells come into contact with this peptide, you know, we've seen it before and they say, oh my gosh, this must be something, you know, to attack. And it's just, you know, from like nuts or whatever. Definitely. So can we say the same thing, uh, uh, what we have a correlation and causation between vaginal versus C-section? Uh, in comparison to breastfeeding versus uh, other means of uh, supplying the milk to the offspring. So does that also have the possibility of changing the microbiome of the offsprings? Because you just mentioned that there is a micro microbiomes on the skin as well. And if a mother is not able to breastfeed that much often, will that alter the behavior of the microbiome of their offspring? Yep, that's another potential influence. So breast milk contains um, microbes, but potentially from the milk ducts, uh, antibodies, and human milk oligosaccharides. So those are specific yeah. carbohydrates that we haven't been able to replicate, replicate. Um, you know, yeah, in, in sort of like food production. So that breast milk, and the breast milk is going to be um, also like unique to the mother as well. So it could be potentially, you know, that like with the diversity of the mother's diet could influence, you know, the the um, components of her breast milk. And, um, you know, she's going to be also assisting in the development of the infant's uh, immune system because of this. Yeah. And that's not something that we have in, in formula either. So, you know, of course, I fully in support of the 
um, you know, the, the idea that like fed is best, like, you know, if you can't breastfeed for some reason, you know, then, you know, giving your baby whatever nutrients you can, that is of the utmost importance. And so, you know, sometimes women just don't produce milk or, you know, there's something going on. So it's just a necessity. Um, but fortunately, formula is improving and, you know, they have started to sometimes add probiotics to the formula. And, um, you know, that is to, you know, hopefully help to increase like the levels of bifidobacteria in the infant gut. So they're, they're trying to produce, um, you know, also these oligosaccharides that are similar to the human milk oligosaccharides. So, um, you know, it's very similar in terms of like the macronutrient content and, and macronutrients themselves can influence the composition of the microbiome, but we still are kind of missing out on, you know, the components of human breast milk. Um, so that's another co potentially confounding factor, you know, early in life, like if you were uh, at a C-section birth and then were breastfed, that you, at least you started off with, you know, a different set, like a different core microbiome yeah. that was, you know, born vaginally and, and breastfed. Definitely, definitely. Really good piece of information and uh, it would help uh, listeners a lot. So, with that in mind, uh, how much role does gut health plays in optimizing our digestion? Because our targeted op uh, population or the people who are reaching you and are reaching me for their as a whether they are lifestyle clients or strength and conditioning client, your macronutrients, micronutrients, all your those diet plans or diet charts will come into the play later on. But first, we have to see that. Uh, your actual engine is running in a cor correct manner, which is processing the entire fuel, right? If it's not processing the, uh, the entire fuel in a correct manner, no matter what kind of intervention we try, whether we go higher in a surplus, in a deficit, or we, whether we try to uh, fix some micronutrient deficiencies, it will be a hit or miss, it, or it would not be as optimized as we want to be, uh, we, we want it to be, and it will dump even more noise to the signal so it will becomes really really murky to identify what is the actual signal and what is the actual noise so what is the role of gut health when it comes to the digestion of a general population or even a athletic population oh sure well the microbiome is because of its um extensive set of genes and you know its functionality it does play important roles um throughout the lifespan in an, and in a number of different ways for, for human just physiology and normal functioning. So there are theories that it plays a role in um, brain uh, development and, and from there appetite and feeding behaviors, yeah. that it could play a role in immune function, which obviously is going to affect um, our training capacity. You know, if, if we're sick, then we're not- Recovery, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and in, uh, even in the adaptations to exercise potentially because of its role in immune function. So we do actually need an immune response to uh, adapt to exercise and get better. And it also um, helps to extract energy from the diet. So energy harvesting is the term that we use to refer to this. And basically what those microbes are doing uh, is taking indigestible carbohydrates, dietary fibers, and converting them to short chain fatty acids. And the microbes are not doing this really for us, they're doing it for themselves. You know, this is how they're um, gaining energy from the things that we're not using. But then by doing that, they're converting something that's not, uh, the, the energy is not available to us, they're making that energy available to us. And there are estimations from very, very limited evidence that this could increase our energy absorption by up to 200 calories a day. So some people might not, um, and they're they're they're. This is a rough estimate that they're using based on like doubly labeled water and um, energy lost in fecal matter. So again, you know, it could be way less than that. It could be more. And there's a wide range. They've they've seen like some people don't seem to harvest any additional energy from the diet. You know, they just like there's fiber passes in, comes back out, and they haven't uh, gained any short chain fatty acids that you know have been measurable. And so in that case, they may be producing more gas rather than the short chain fatty acids. And the other thing that they may be able to do is to clear lactate, or well, I shouldn't say clear lactate, that doesn't help with our performance, but they can convert lactate to glucose. 
uh, or excuse me, um, pyru um, propionate. <laughs> propionate. So they convert lactate to propionate. Um, but there are other microbes that actually can also produce uh, glucose. So they're basically performing gluconeogenesis for us, uh, or they are, you know, with lactate, they're, they're clearing, they're, they're consuming that lactate, which is not a helpful, um, you know, energy source for us. So, uh, yeah. as you have mentioned, uh, all these frameworks, and we have established a lot uh, basic uh, frameworks and the guidelines. So, how can a particular layman person can identify that there are some kind of a mismatch happening because of that they are having some kind of issues? So, what are the you can say uh, guiding factors or what are the kind of symptoms that people should look out for when? it comes to the impairment of their gut health. Sure, yeah. So there are really no outward factors um, or, or outward symptoms of what we would term to be an um, imbalanced microbiome or dysbiosis, um, with the exception of if a person has an infection, like they have a C. difficile overgrowth, or they have a foodborne illness where they've ingested a microbe that's that's not a normal inhabitant, and they'll have you know severe vomiting and diarrhea and things like that. Um, but when it comes to you know even trying to determine what's like the healthy microbiome, we haven't established that yet. So we don't actually have reference ranges for the normal inhabitants of the gut. And we don't have, you know, um, like you wouldn't be able to tell like, oh, I have too much lactobacilli or too few bifidobacteria, um, you know, because I have these crazy symptoms. But there are red flags of potential diseases that people should be aware of so that if they notice this, then they can go to the doctor. You know, they want to see a gastroenterologist who would screen them, you know, for, for disease. So if they are noticing um, a change in like the the frequency of stool. So if they are suddenly going really frequently, if they're going in the middle of the night, uh, or if they are being, or if they're feeling very constipated. So if they're going um, less than three times per week and they're straining often, then that's a sign you know, to go to the gastroenterologist and get checked out. Or if they're having frequent diarrhea, then that's another sign to go and get checked out. If they're noticing strange color in their stool, like it's very black, or there's um, bright red in it, or if it's very yellow, or if they're noticing an extremely foul smell and there seems to be oil uh, in the water, those are signs of um, either blood in the stool or uh, fat malabsorption, respectively. So keeping an eye on really strange colors. Um, sometimes they might see green. So if they're having diarrhea and they're seeing that it's green, that means that the microbes haven't had time to uh, metabolize certain proteins in it. And so that means that it's gone through body very quickly. And so those are some, you know, signs to get checked out. Or if you're noticing that your, um, the size of the bowel movements has changed. So it's very, very narrow rather than sort of like the normal, like log shape that we would see, then that could be a sign of a blockage or something strange going on that, um, you know, would not be as noticeable maybe. So um, definitely all signs to get checked out, or if they're having severe abdominal pain, then you know and a lot of cramping and things like that um, to go get looked at for that as well. So those are all sort of like red flags, and especially if they have a known family history of bowel disease, got a family history of colorectal cancer, um, you know, celiac disease, or inflammatory bowel syndrome, or even irritable bowel syndrome. That um, though there could potentially be a genetic um, factor in there as well, and to go get that checked out. Um, in terms of things like bloating, that can be very subjective. Sometimes yeah. people, you know, they'll feel like they're bloated, but it's either just a normal amount of gas production, or there's not really, you know, bloating going on. They they just might feel like overly full. Um, but if they are experiencing, you know, stomach distension and things like that, um, so their stomach is like looking really stretched out and they're experiencing frequent bloating, then they can go um, checked out for that as well. Definitely. So we just have to identify the green flags and the red flags. And if it's, uh, if there is no issues, if there are no red flags, do not try to fix which, which isn't broken. But I have, when I read through your book, uh, uh, you have mentioned that uh, varying ranges of constipation and varying ranges of uh, diarrhea as well. So that gives us really good uh, insight. So basically, when a person feels like uh, there is some kind of a 
irritability in their bowel movement some kind of frequency uh, changes the way they are experiencing their bowel movements or the quality of the bowel movements that can give them uh, brief insights on something is my going wrong or something needs to be checked so that's really really great uh, things to know about also one thing that you have mentioned in your book, book that we also change our gut microbiome based on the foods that we eat right so should we eat uh, according to our my, uh, gut microbiome or is it the other way around that our microbiome adapts uh, the way that we eat well sort of both so our microbiome yeah. is really adaptive, adaptive and it will um change it will respond to our dietary habits and this can happen very quickly in as little as 24 hours but in terms of really significant lasting change it's more likely our long-term dietary patterns that will really determine which microbes are um long-term sort of like long-term residents but that being said, the whole microbiome itself is very stable. So after about the age of three, we end up with a stable microbiome. Uh, and there's theoretically even a sort of a core human microbiome um, that some percentage of the microbes are there simply because we're, we are a human species. And we do see that, for example, when we transplant from a human donor to a rodent recipient that not that that like the the rodent the human donor sample isn't um, maintained in that rodent, so there is a change simply due to the rodent's uh, 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 anatomy and physiology of their GI tract and their dietary patterns as well. So it's not a perfect um, match. You know, it's not like it takes and then it's 100% a human microbiome, sort of a, a mouse flavored microbiome. Um, and so with the um, with the human microbiome and its response to dietary patterns. If we go to extremes, uh, it's been shown that within 24 hours, if a person were to switch to a, a completely zero plant, zero fiber diet and have just you know meat and cheese, that they would see uh, significant changes in the relative abundance of certain microbes. So usually it's a loss of bifidobacteria. That's something that we've seen in different diets that have uh, low fiber in common. So if we have like a low, sort of a low um, soluble fiber intake, low prebiotic fiber intake, that bifidobacteria levels will usually drop, whereas bacteroides levels will increase because bacteroides is more adaptive. It, it doesn't require, it doesn't have as much of a, a requirement of just carbohydrates. So it can use uh, proteins for energy. And so we see this sort of relative, you know, again, we're talking about like the pie chart. So bifidobacteria goes down, bacteroides go up. So sometimes that relative abundance it, um, is just due to the loss of one microbe, not necessarily the overgrowth mm. of another. So that's why it'd be a little bit confusing when we're looking at that versus just numbers. But we've also got data where um, actual numbers of bifidobacteria are falling and bacteroides are elevated. So that's just kind of one example of a characteristic change that has been replicated with these um, dietary interventions that are kind of on the more extreme level. But when it comes to, you know, picking between uh, like a prudent omnivorous diet versus a vegan and vegetarian diet, we really don't see the same significant differences. So vegans and vegetarians and omnivores uh, don't always have significantly different um, microbiome profiles because, you know, they're all eating um, proteins, carbohydrates, and fats, you know, from different sources, yes, but not, it's not so uh, different that we're seeing like really stark contrasts. But that being said, this is assuming that the omnivorous diet or vegan or vegetarian diet is a prudent one that provides adequate fiber. So what we have seen in a recent study on bodybuilders was yeah. that the bodybuilders that were eating a low fiber diet had lower microbial diversity than the bodybuilders who were eating adequate fiber. And their microbial diversity was actually um, the ones who had inadequate fiber. It was no different from the sedentary controls. So it could be that those microbe accessible carbohydrates and those prebiotics that are used preferentially by our beneficial microbes are mediating you know, our response to exercise and are necessary for uh, a full 
milieu of microbes that we would expect to see. And it's the same thing with the functionality. So when we're looking at gene expression in the microbiome, we're looking at a snapshot of what they've been up to recently. So if we're feeding, you know, a low fiber, high protein diet, we're going to see more genes being expressed for proteolytic fermentation. And the opposite is true when we're feeding carbohydrate, low protein diet. So these, these, um, you know, tests that, you know, test your fecal sample and tell you which diet to use um, are, are kind of science fiction because A, you know, if they're really looking at that and they're saying like, these are the genes that you're actually expressing, it would just be a snapshot of what you've been eating lately. If they're just looking at the genes that are available, but not necessarily what you've been expressing, they're just saying, this is what your microbiome can possibly do, but we don't actually know what it's doing. It's like looking at a recipe. Yeah. So um, what we, what's, what's more prudent, what makes more sense is to uh, synthesize just the kind of basics of microbiology. Like what do these microbes need to use for energy? <laughs> they need carbohydrates. Where are they gonna get that? From our indigestible dietary carbohydrates or from the mucus layer of our intestine, which yeah. is what we don't want them to use. So, you know, kind of going to those basics and then applying that to intervention studies and observational studies then we can see that it makes a great deal of sense to eat a variety of plant foods to provide a variety of these dietary carbohydrates for them. And um, we don't necessarily have to remove animal proteins from the diet, but just keep in, keeping in mind that that proteolytic fermentation usually leads to the production of some metabolites that could be um, harmful or play a potential role in cancer pathogenesis. So, you know, making sure that we have enough fiber that they're using that instead and, um, you know, making sure that kind of like fits within sort of this prudent dietary pattern. Hello listeners. I hope you would have liked this episode of the podcast series. And if you did, please feel free to share it with your friends, families, and your colleagues so that they can also get benefit from the science-based discussion that we just had. With that in mind, this podcast, along with all the episodes, is now available on all the major platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, along with the audiovisual media YouTube. So, with that in mind, let me bid adieu for this time, and I will see you in the next episode.